1961, I got to the point of where I decided that I wasn't going to be able to drink myself to death, and I went 300 miles away to get some help and the booby hatch. And they, they sent me back up on a rehab ward because that was the only way I could sign my name in as an alcoholic to get out, more or less, when I wanted to. They sent me off one afternoon to see the psychiatrist, or psychologist, rather, and that afternoon they, they played a tape of one of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you know what? It was a guy from, from where I started from. I didn't know Gil and you two because of what it says on page 570 of the big book. And this is a quote from Herbert Spencer. It says, there's a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all argument, and cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. And that principle is contempt prior to investigation. Gil represented something that appeared in the newspaper back there, and it said, if you want to drink, that's your problem. If you want to quit, that's ours. And I didn't want to quit. So, I didn't get to know him until I came in here. A lot of good things has happened to me as a result of trying to get to know him. Most of it's just the fact of finding out what I was missing back there all the time. At this time, I'd like to share Gil with you. <coughs> Gil? Yeah, all these people have been getting up here, these little old dinky notes from... Virginia and so forth. Here's notes, Texas style. <laughs> I may not use them, but there they are. There you are know, some things that you don't want to tell people sometimes, and so you make some notes there to be sure not to run over into that. You might not want them to know that. You know, uh, I used to say of my late wife that I uh, I don't believe I'd be in AA if it wasn't for her. Said Dad Gummidge, uh, I, I used to tell her we was down there at Abilene, and I was trying to work as a salesman, Abilene, Texas, of course, there isn't anything else. <laughs> and uh, I said if you'd just let me keep my liquor in the frigidaire like other people, and come home from work and reach in there and get a drink or two. I wouldn't have to do all these disappearing acts and maybe be gone for a day or two or maybe three, drinking somewhere else. And you know what she said? She said, you just stay sober long enough to buy a bridge there and we'll try that in two. forgotten that we didn't have anything but an old ice box and I hadn't made enough money. You know, there was a, there was a fellow down there in Mule Shoe that, uh, he was, uh, he was awfully dumb, they told me. They, he, 
He went to, to high school all right, and the reason why I bring this up and uh, <clears throat> is I am a high school fallout myself. <laughs> Some people were dropouts, but I fell out. <laughs> And this old boy, he, uh, you know, it does me good to watch uh, Drysdale last week. I was worth the 1,200 miles that we got out there on that speedometer every mile. They, uh, but this fellow, they got him into high school and they got him through the sophomore year finally. And then the teachers worked with him and they finally got him through his junior year and he was dumb. Awfully dumb. gummy and mathematics, he just couldn't figure mathematics anyway at all. They'd go over it and over it with him, and the teachers worked so hard with him. And finally came his senior year, and they just couldn't move him any farther. That was all. They just couldn't do it in clear conscience as much as they liked this old boy, and he was a likable guy. So they flunked him out. Well, about ten years later, this class had a reunion, and they sent out letters to everybody in the senior club. And lo and behold, who should drive up but old Hickey? He comes to the reunion, and nobody didn't ever expect to see him. And he was sitting around, and they were noticing that he had on very fine clothes, and they were noticing that he had on a big diamond ring. And they were noticing that he was lighting up big, fat, expensive cigars. And when he went to leave, uh, they noticed that he got out there in a big black automobile, and they said, we got to find out what's happened to Icky. said, he's come into a lot of money or something. So when Icky came back for the afternoon session, and they went to elect the officers and everything, well, some of them come up and said, Icky, looks like you've been uh, doing pretty well financially. He said, yes, I've been getting along pretty good. Said, well, uh, what have, uh, what has happened to you? What kind of business? And he said, I'll tell you what I've done, fellas. He said, I have invented a little gadget that I can make for a dollar and sell for six. And you know, you can accumulate a hell of a lot of money on that five percent. <laughs> You know, that fella down at the street board, they said, uh, said, well, I thought you was going to talk on humility. He said the crowd wasn't big enough. <laughs> this, uh, used to be this old boy down at El Paso, and a lot of people do have a problem sometimes coming in there doing 12-step work. They, they, they don't know how to go about it, and they're scared, and they're afraid they might say the wrong thing. They want somebody else to go with them, which they should, I think. All people should go in twos on a 12-step call when they possibly can. I believe that. It says that in the books, why I believe that. And then I also know that I didn't have very good success when I went on some by myself. I give them the shock treatment that they wouldn't quit right then while I hit in on their liquor and drank it up for them. <laughs> I 
But this old girl, Fatso, sobered up down there. This uh, Jim, this one old sussies joke. And it's the truth, supposedly. But old Fatso finally got sober and he said, Now, fellas, he said, I'll just make this coffee and I'll help uh, clean out the ashtrays and things like that. But he said, That young going out on those 12 step calls, said, I don't know, I just can't make it. Now, first, old Faxo was a kind of a drunk, you know. He'd get drunk, and he never could quite get all these clothes zipped up properly. And he'd get, his, he'd get his shirt tail out, and he would get very loud, very loud, in case you didn't know he's drunk, just listen, and he'd tell you about it. He'd holler at everybody across the street and attract people to him when he was drunk. So, but he said, fellas, I get out here, and he said, I just freeze. I can't think of anything to say. He said, I don't know how to talk to people about this. He said, now, I can bring them to the meetings and sit there with them and things like that, but going out and call them on their homes, he said, I just can't do that. And it's said that they told old Fatso, Fatso, if you just keep your zipper high and your voice low, you'll do a real good job. Now, don't anybody get excited, because we're going to be out of here in two hours and ten minutes. That's all I'm going to talk, just the first time down here. I won't argue. No, I tell you, I, I was kind of talking this over there, and they said, well, how long do you want me to talk? And they told me, and I said, gosh, I hate to drive all the way down here and just half unload. and <laughs> haul it all back down there. So anyway, we'll get out of here before. And one thing, if you get through listening before I get through talking, why, well, you know why. <laughs> I won't feel bad. I used to be in show business, and I've had people get up that had to buy a ticket to get in and leave. So I won't feel bad about it at all. I do want to thank... Old Jim and Clarence and Olin and Neely and Andy and Fred and Jack and Jim and George and Ed for giving me an invitation to come down here and bring my wife with me. And I want to thank the master in AA that I could come. I also want to say this tonight, and if you pardon this, a very good friend of mine that was one of the first circuit riders I ever heard speak in AA. He is one of the out-of-town speakers that traveled around the country and went wherever he could and helped carry this message in 1946. Horace Ford, some of you may have heard of him. You may have heard him somewhere. He's been paralyzed now a little over four years. And I might say that I'm here tonight in some measure because Horace Ford said there isn't any such thing as a hopeless alcoholic. And for a while, that's the only thing I had to hang on to. I had to believe that Horace Ford had seen enough in AA and knew enough that he could say that truthfully. There is no such thing as a hopeless alcoholic. I also remember that Horace Ford said Next to war, that alcoholism has probably caused more pain and more sorrow than any other one thing. Horace Ford now has been paralyzed for some four years and a little better. And I went to see him just a few months ago, and I told him, Horace, 
wherever I can and wherever I'm invited, your voice will still be heard. I also want to speak tonight with Henry Walcott, Bill Houston, Dr. Ingram, and the fine Al-Anon ladies that have meant so much to me and have helped me so much to get sober. The last three gentlemen that I mentioned would have loved to come to Tennessee, but they're no longer with us. They've gone to the big meeting. My late wife died January the 12th, 1963, very suddenly. And she's gone on to the big meeting. And in Texas, they said that she was one of the first I'm Gil Lamb, and I'm a member of the Mule Texas group and an associate member of every other cockeyed group in the world. <laughs> Y'all know where Mule Texas is, so there's no use going into that. There's no use going into this. Right down there close to last, buddy. Right down there. <laughs> Right down there where George Washington lives. You know, I, I've told this on three fours that George Washington, when he gets very far away from Mewshoe, he has a heck of a time getting a phone call back there, you know? <laughs> Say, hello, operator. Said, I, uh, I, I want to get Mewshoe, Texas. And of course, they immediately contest and say, where? The Mewshoe, Texas. Mole Show? No, not Mole Show. Mewshoe, Texas. All right. Who's this speaking now? George Washington. Have we got plenty of time? Well, George Washington, he was a coach out there at last, but that's a few miles out from you. And there was another coach over here in Martin, Texas. Now, this is a true story. <laughs> so, George Washington gets hold of this operator, and he wants to talk to this other coach. And the other coach's name was John Paul Jones. <laughs> <laughs> and get that one, too. George's left over here broke an arrow of Oklahoma. <laughs> And he was teaching school down in Mewshoe, Texas, and he had a Texas license on his car. And he came into Vernon, Texas, from Oklahoma. And he was going to need a full tank of gas, and he was going to need these oil chains. And he dropped into this filling station there, and he told the man, he said, I'm going to need a tank of gas, and I'm going to need uh, my uh, oil chains, but said, I'm going to have to give you a check. And he said, okay. He said, where do you live? He said, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Kind <laughs> of looked out there and said, that's a Texas license on your car. He said, yes. said, I teach school down in Texas. He said, mm-hmm. Where about Texas? He said, Mule Shoe, Texas. He said, mm-hmm. He <laughs> said, uh, what's your name? He said, George Washington. He said, I don't believe I love cash Thank <laughs> you.
But I am your lamb, and I'm an ex-drunkard. But I'm still an alcoholic. And it's by the grace of God in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous and people like you in it. A great deal of help from my late wife and my daughter when I needed it most and continuing support for my present wife that I'm able to be here tonight. It took all of that for me and that came close to not being enough. I got drunk when I took my first drink in 1922 and I got drunk when I took my last drink in 1952. And I don't believe I have another drink coming. I don't believe I could live through another drunk, and I don't want to. But because of the way I lived yesterday, I haven't wanted a drink today. Thank God. In 1921, in my hometown, I was walking down the sidewalk, and they came dragging a man across the sidewalk. His heels plopped down off of the curbing, and they shoved him in the back end of a car. And the police took him away to jail. Some people there on the sidewalk watching this, I saw the look in their eyes. They looked upon this man with loathing, disgust, and some of them, some of them with almost hatred in their eyes. Still, there were others that kind of laughed about it. And I heard them call this man's name. And I'd heard him discussed as one of the town drunkards. I'd heard him talked about in my house and in the neighbor's houses. How sorry they felt for his wife. What a fine woman she was. What a terrible time she was having raising those children upright with a drunken husband like that. I knew this man's children. And my heart was very heavy as I thought of them. And I couldn't understand those men that laughed. And I couldn't understand those men that looked upon him with loathing and hatred in their eyes. The next day at school, I couldn't look at those children. I just couldn't bear it. I knew how terrible they must feel with their father up there in jail, a drunk. In 1948, some friends of mine took me down to Seminole, Texas, where there was a hospital there. And people were going there, and they were receiving treatment for their physical bodies, and they were being introduced to a way that they could stay sober. And people who went to this hospital were coming out of there, many of them, and leading a good way of life. My friends took me down there, and before three or four hours, had elapsed, I got kicked out of that hospital. I didn't have time for them to clean me up a little bit. I didn't have time to get shaved. I didn't have time for them to give me a pill or some peraldehyde or a little shot of liquor or whatever they was going to give me to calm me down. And I went down that street, a very sick, shattered man. I managed to get a hold of some cheap alcohol, and I checked in an old rooming house right across from the jail. I went upstairs, and it was very hot in this room. And finally, I staggered out in the hall and fell there in the hall. They said I was talking in the unknown tongue or something. 
fell out there in that hall, and the proprietor of this place called the police. He didn't want a man dying on him up there in his hotel. And these police drug me across this street and threw me in jail. And I'm sure that some people looked upon me with loathing and disgust and with hatred in their eyes. And I'm sure others laughed and look at the drunk being carted over to jail. One of my shoes came off in the middle of the street, I was told later. This was a new jail. It was clean. And they threw me on the floor. They didn't have to throw me. All they had to do was just turn me loose. I took care of that. But I lay there on that floor, I don't know how long. And when I came to, I couldn't get up. I would raise up just a little ways and my entire body would just shake, quiver. I managed to get over to the wall and I came up this wall. And I said, dear God, unless somebody helps me, I'll not get through this night. And I don't believe I would have. I believe that I was as sick as I ever was in my life. I was standing there and I heard a noise behind me at this jailhouse door. And I turned around and there stood a big, tall cowboy. And he said, how do you feel, kid? And I said, mister, I'm just about to go to pieces. And he hollered and said, Bob, come here. Let me in here, will you? And he came in. He had on these western cut pants, you know, the pockets go straight down. And after Bob, the sheriff opened that door and let him in there, he reached down this pocket and he pulled out a half a pint of liquor. And as far as I'm concerned, my prayer was answered. My faith in God and man was restored once more. He pulled that liquor out and brought it over. And he said, here, kid, take a big drink of this. Well, I couldn't. I couldn't hold that liquor up there. So he helped me sip it a little bit. And I got a little of that liquor into me. And then he went over to a tin cup there and he poured it about half full. And he said, I'll tell you what you do, kid. Put it off as long as you can, and then you drink what's in that little cup. And I'll be back to see you about midnight. I'm going down to Seagraves to a meeting. He said, I was over there in that hospital where you were. He said, I found something over there that's helped me an awful lot. But he said, kid, you're too sick to hear about that now. I'll see you about midnight. And he left. And Bob came down and locked the door. Well, I felt some better. The perspiration started breaking out on me. Now, I believe that is sweat. That broke, that broke out on me that day. And you know, that makes you feel better for a little while. And I got to thinking about this fellow. And I'd been in jail before. Numerous times. 
And I'd heard people that say, don't worry about a thing. I got a brother-in-law down here and I'll go see him. Get us all. Uh, what's that number you want me to call? I'll call it and let me give you the money. Oh, I don't need the money. I'll, don't you worry. No, I never had anybody make any call or anybody see his brother-in-law or anybody come back and do anything for me yet when I was in jail. I met some awfully smart people in jail, so they said. <laughs> One of our smart people from Texas is in the federal pen now. <laughs> Well, I couldn't believe that he was coming back. I got up and I took this cup, needless to say, with both hands because I didn't want to spill a drop of it. That was precious. Then. And I got that, the rest of that liquor down me and then I moved over onto this cot and I looked out the window. They had some nice lawn out there. The water sprinklers were going, but I couldn't appreciate that nice lawn, the water sprinkler or anything else. I lay there in my brain whirled. I was just about to go mad. And I thought, this fellow's not coming back. He has no reason to come back. He doesn't know me. He's never heard of me. Now, I've never heard of him before. And why should he come back? any more than any of the rest. And I drank the rest of that liquor in that tin cup. And it seemed like forever and a day till I heard some big boot heels clicking down this hallway and here came that big cowboy and he had the key this time and unlocked that door. Now I found out that old Bill had been drunk around there for many years and he had caused the sheriff and the deputies and the constable and the chief of police and all the special police and all a lot of trouble during those drinking years. And now old Bill had gotten sober. And they'd just let him do just about anything he wanted to around that jailhouse because they sure didn't want to upset him and start him on that. <laughs> That's how Bill came to have the keys. And he came in there and said, how you feel, kid? I said, well, I feel some better, but I'm sure glad to see you. I didn't think you was coming back. Oh, he said, I went to a little meeting down here at Seagraves. He said, here, kid. And he filled this half a pint up again, I guess. You take another drink of this. And I took another drink of that. And then he poured some more in that tin cup. And then he said, kid, you know what they told me over there about this AA program? <clears throat> he said, they told me if I just opened my mind and my heart that this program would work for me. And it has. They told me that it is right here for me if I want it and that it would work for me if I'd let it. And he said, kid, I found it's the truth. I found it's the truth. But I believe you're too sick to hear anything about that tonight. Tell you what I'm going to do. I've got a little spread out here with a few head of cattle I'm taking care of. And he said, I'm going to see Bob in the morning. 
and see if you won't let me take you out there. He ain't got any business being in this jail. Well, you know, that doubt came in about three o'clock in the morning. Well, Bob wouldn't let him take me out of there. And he probably wouldn't come back. He's got to take care of his livestock out there. He hadn't got time to fool around with me all these hours. But old Bill Houston came back. And Bob unlocked the door and said, be a good boy. <clears throat> we got in this old pickup of his. We started out to this little spread where he was taking care of a few cattle. We sat down in his kitchen <laughs> and he said, Stell, make us some coffee. And Stell made some coffee. And then he said, Kid, have you read this book of AA? <clears throat> This is the 1939 edition, and that's the old drunk cover that was on. Have you read this book of AA? And I said, yeah, I've read it. In fact, I had parts of it memorized. He said, well, read it some more. And he pushed this book over there to me. And I started reading this book to myself. <clears throat> And he said, read it out loud, kid. And I started to read out loud. And I read, and I read, and I read. And it seemed that he hung on every word that I read, like he'd never heard it before. And it seemed that I felt better as we read and read and read. And I came down to this part Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then. And then he said... Well, I tell you, kids, that I got to go out to the lot and feed. Said you can drink some more coffee here, go in there and lie down if you want to. Said just make yourself at home. And after old Bill Houston went out the back door, his wife turned to me. And said, do you know why Bill wanted you to read out of that book? And I said, well, I guess he thought it would help me. Now, do you know why Bill wanted you to read out loud? I said, no, ma'am. She said, my husband can't read. My husband can't read nor write. Yet Bill Houston could open his mind and his heart. He found out that it was there for him, and it would work for him if he'd let it. Bill Houston rode out to that place in an old pickup. Wouldn't anybody take a chance on financing a new one for him. He only had just a few head of cattle, and he couldn't add any more. Wouldn't anybody finance him. Didn't anybody trust him. 
And anybody want anything to do with him in a financial way or any other way. But when Bill Houston died, he could go to the bank and borrow as much money as he told him he could pay back. And doesn't it make you a little sick sometime when you hear doctors, lawyers, scientists, educators, business executives tell you what's wrong with this program, why it won't work. I believe if it worked for old Bill Houston, who couldn't read nor write, he had to believe what he heard you people tell him. <laughs> and God bless him, he died so. You know, there's a story about the wise old man that lived up on the hill. And the people went to this wise old man with all of their problems. Whether it was a domestic problem, financial problem, whatever kind of problem that they were having, they'd go to the wise old man up on the hill. And one day a smart young counselor moved in and he didn't like this situation. He wanted those people to come to him. He wanted to get some of their money. But they continued to go to the wise old man up on the hill. So one day this young counselor got a group of people around him, 10 or 12, and he said, listen, that old man up on the hill is a quack. He's an imposter. He makes you people think he's so smart, but he isn't. And he said, if you'll be here with me next Saturday morning, I'll prove it to you. He asked them if they'd be there, and they said they would. And after the majority of these people drifted away, one of his friends that he'd acquired since he'd been there stayed by and said, what on earth are you going to do to show the old man up? He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get me a bird. You may have heard this, but act like you did. <laughs> he said, I'm going to get me a bird I'm going up there to that old man You'll see the tail feathers of this bird sticking out of my hand I'm going to ask him, old man, what have I got in my hand? And of course he'll see that and he'll say, well, you have a bird and I'm going to ask him, old man, is it dead or is it alive? And if he says it's dead, I'll open my hand and let it fly away he says it's alive, I'll close my hand on it and crush it, and I'll kill it. So the next Saturday came, and about ten of these people showed up, and they went up there, and he knocked on the door. And the old man came to the door, and he said, old man, what do I have in my hand? And the old man said, well, you have a bird, my son. He said, that's right, I want to ask you now, old man. Is it dead or is it alive? And the old gentleman said, It's as you wish it, my son. It's as you wish it. And isn't that the way it is with this book? We can open up our mind and our heart and let the warmth and the goodness and the fellowship and the love that's available to anybody. Come into our lives, or we can close our mind and our heart and destroy ourselves and those around us. 
You know, we really have something going for us in this fellowship. This blessed fellowship. And I think there are many people that do not appreciate it. Down in my part of the country, I'm privileged to go around quite often and make talks. And I hear this quite often. I wish I'd have known you were coming. I'd have been there. You know, we've got a new color TV now. And by golly, have you seen that show, so-and-so-and-so-and-so? No, I haven't seen that show. I probably will sometime. Well, we've got one, and uh, you know I had my house slippers already on and car put up. Before I found out you were going to be there. Now, what difference did it make who was going to be there? You know, when we come in here, I believe we accept an obligation to share our faith and our hope and our experience with others. And we can't do that if we stay home and watch color television. Not on meeting now. Well, it's their privilege if they want to come into this program and get the goodie out of it and take it home and put it on deep freeze. But it's also my privilege if I want to talk about it. <laughs> I'm not taking their inventory. I'm just stating a matter of a fact. We have one fellow down in our part of the country said, I still send them down there, though. Well, how in the hell does he know anybody down there to talk to him? <laughs> and you know I had an old boy tell me on that color television. On that color television bit, and I didn't say a thing, but you know I knew him when he couldn't pay the down payment on a transistor radio. <laughs> that was before AA. You bet your life. Oh, if I never forget where my foundation is. Well, I'm on the board of my church. And I've been asked to join the Rotary and the Lions and serve in an official capacity on the Chamber of Commerce. And I'm chairman of the United Fund Drive and president of the Mule Memorial Association. <laughs> up that statue down there to the mule, and I'm the president. They said old lamb went around and made a jackass out of himself 20 years, and now he's erecting a statue. <laughs> yeah. But here's a peculiar thing. Before I got into AA, I wasn't asked to serve on the board of my church, and I wasn't invited to join the Rotary and the Lions, and I wasn't asked to serve in that capacity with the community chest. They just didn't anybody want me to serve anywhere. So I don't want to forget that, and please, God, don't ever let me forget that. And I mention that, that there may be someone here tonight that needs to share that same thought with me. The Brotherhood is fine. The Methodist men is fine. The Lions Club is fine, and the Rotary Club is fine. But my very last blood was pumped back into my body through this fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't want to ever forget that. It comes first. To me, the most important meeting tonight, now that's to me, that is being held in Mount Eagle or anywhere else is this meeting right here. 
It is true, I hate. But I made an acquaintance with a God that I can understand. It is through AA that I learned to love people and to forgive people, and some of them that it hurt me very bad back down through the years. And it'll be through AA, I'm sure, that I'll continue to live a fairly normal and, I hope, useful life. I know one thing. I hope they can say about me what they said about old Pete out there at Clovis, New Mexico. I went to Pete's funeral. And this minister looked out and he said, Well, we don't have hardly any denominations represented here today in Mass, but we have people of all denominations and some of no faith, you might say as far as denominations go. He said, this man didn't receive any plaques from the Chamber of Commerce or any scrolls from the lines of the Rotary of the Kiwanis for the work that he did. He chose to work with the untouchables. And then he said, more than any other man's funeral that I have ever preached, this man, Pete Anderson, lives on. I hope they can say that. Pete was never too busy to go and call on somebody in need. He was never too busy to try to carry this message. And another thing about Pete, his daughter married Dr. Bob's son. He got in this early, and he got one of these books right from the family. <laughs> but he got it free, too. <laughs> But Pete was in his meeting place every week when his health would permit it. And to me, that's a good AA. Somebody's got to warn these chairs. We can't all be circuit riders, you know. Somebody's got to be out there to listen. Not talking about what we really have here to appreciate. I want to tell you a little story and... Possibly some of you are going to say that I, I, I've heard that story, but you haven't heard me tell it. <laughs> I might tell it a little different. Anyway, this story happened 101 years ago this January. The setting is New York City, and it was bitter cold. And a man was brought into Bellevue Hospital. He didn't have on any underwear. He wasn't wearing a hat. He didn't have on any socks. He had on a light suit and a very light top coat, even though it was bitter cold. He had a bump on his head. He had a burn on his leg and a cut on his face. They put him to bed in the poor ward of Bellevue Hospital. And three days later, he died, and the record said of injuries accidentally received. But we know better than that now. We know that those injuries were not even sufficient to hospitalize him. We know that he died of alcoholism. Almost unnoticed in his clothing was a little crumpled piece of paper and 38 cents in script. And on this little piece of paper was written, Dear Friends and Gentle Hearts. 
Our people didn't pay much attention to a drunk being brought into Bellevue Hospital, taken back to the poor ward and dying there. But there was a ward and dying there. But there was something a little different about this man. Because the soldiers on both sides in the Civil War, or the war between the states, were singing songs that this man had written. My old Kentucky home, Jeannie with the light brown hair, beautiful dreamer, camp town races, and many others. Years after this man's death, biographers, historians, went back into the history of this man to see why a man who had given the world so much in beautiful folk music, should have died in the poor ward so alone, alone, so misunderstood and seemingly unwanted. They talked to people that had known him. And some of them said, well, I've seen him promise Jeannie on everything that was holy that he would never do it again. And then he'd be drunk within a fortnight. I understand that, don't you? Others said, well, he would go along and do very well. And then it seemed that he was given to a fit of drinking. And I can understand that. There was another party that said, he just seemed to withdraw from society and everything that was good. And I can understand that. And then there was one lady... There was one lady that said, at the last, it became easier for him to cry than to laugh. And I can understand that. Then one party said, it seemed to come upon him insidiously. And as the doctor said, she had the answer that they couldn't see themselves. For alcoholism is an insidious illness. You take a few drinks and think you're enjoying it and finally you get drunk on weekends and finally you get a little too much during the middle of the week. And then the first thing you know, you have a little blackout and then you have a longer blackout. And then you wake up some morning and you have to have a drink and you're in the grips of alcohol. Stephen Foster, I think, expressed his illness through the song. Beautiful dream. Genie with a light brown hair. All the love and the longing for home. All up and down the whole creation. Sadly, I roam. Longing for the old plantation. And for the old folks at home. For all this world is sad and dreary. Everywhere I go. How my heart grows weary, far from the old folks at home. Stephen Foster couldn't go home and tell his family that he loved them deeply, as much as any other man loved his family, because they could not understand. Their thinking was, Stephen, if you really loved us, you wouldn't get drunk. They were saying, and they didn't know it. 
Stephen, if you really loved us, you wouldn't suffer from this disease of alcoholism. For his family never ceased to help him when they could. They did what they could when they knew what to do. And they were searching like other families, many of them in the dark, for hundreds of years. His family never ceased to love him or to help him. They were guilty of anything, of one thing, and that was ignorance. And it wasn't an ignorance that, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, from lack of intelligence. It was an ignorance born of tradition and environment. Over the years, people have heard, well, they do it because they want to. They just like it that way. She doesn't care anything for her children, or she wouldn't be that way. I wouldn't waste my time on scum like that. They've heard that year after year after year after year after year. And some of them still refuse to see anything different. You know that some people think that this will not happen in their family with their fine, rich heritage and their Christian background. They just can't picture alcoholism coming into their lives. When what does that have to do with the disease? How many times you go to Sunday school? How many times you go to church? How many times you go to Lions, Rotary, or your Masonic Lodge? What does that have to do with the disease of alcoholism? Nothing. How much education you have, how much money you have, whether you're broke or whether you're a multimillionaire, <clears throat> it has nothing to do with the disease of alcohol. But some people think a tornado will never hit in their community, so they make no preparations, never consider it. That's for somebody else. Some people think that some other family will have a stroke, but not their family, so they make no preparations. I'm sure that Stephen Foster's father never thought that his son would die in the poor ward of Bellevue Hospital at the age of 37. Because Stephen Foster's father was a temperance worker. He was opposed to liquor. He was a fighter against it. He hated it. But his son died a victim of his own physical makeup and his own sick personality. And I think the sad part of it, that Stephen Foster was arraigned, tried, convicted, and sentenced to a life of loneliness and finally death. And not one single person interceded for him. There wasn't anybody like you to tell him. Stephen, you can take your case direct to the most supreme judge of all judges, and your case will be heard, I know, from experience. The docket's never too crowded, Stephen. You can get through. Your case will be heard. There wasn't anybody to tell you that. There wasn't anybody like you to say, Stephen, we understand this, and we want to walk along with you and help you. And we know there isn't any cure, but we can show you how you can arrest it. One day at a time. There wasn't any Alcoholics Anonymous. And there are people today coming in here and filling their bucket. And they're going home. And not coming back. And if it wasn't for people like you, 
we'd go back to the days of Stephen Foster. And there wouldn't be anybody. I drove hundreds of miles in Texas and Oklahoma in the last few months. And I drove through town after town after town where you could stop and call up somebody. But in 1946, when we so desperately wanted to find something, there wasn't any phone numbers to call. And there wasn't anybody to say, when you get there, you call so-and-so, and they'll visit with you a little, and then you go on down the road. There just wasn't anything. I was kicked out of show business, and I nearly every show that I was on in the Southwest. I couldn't get a job anymore. I thought I was weak-willed, wrong-willed, or just plain no good. There didn't anybody tell me that willpower and willpower alone will not conquer any illness. Whether it's diphtheria, pneumonia, or alcoholism, it just won't do it. The will to get well, yes, the will to do something about it is a wonderful thing, but the will and the will alone will not do the job. Well, after I lost what I presume would be my last job in the Southwest, I went out to California. I had a sister out there. I was still a fairly young man, and I thought I possibly could start over. And after being there a short time, I read where they were auditioning people for a radio play. And I went on an audition. They made a transcription of this tryout, and I went home to wait. You know how we are. Well, here I was sober now. I wanted things to happen. Fifteen years, I've been tearing things down now. In three or four days, I wanted everything to fly back together. <laughs> I didn't hear from those people. I paced the floor. I got nervous. Why didn't I hear from them? Here I was in California sober, ready to do a good job for somebody. And the phone rang one day. And they told me that I had been given the part. And that rehearsals would start at such and such a time. But I had already taken a drink that day. And that drink had set up a compulsion within me over which I had no control. None whatsoever. I don't believe that all the devils in hell and all the angels in heaven could have stopped me from drinking that. That's why they say it's so important call before you take that first drink if you're an alcoholic like me. Because it's too late after you die. That compulsion had set up within me. One drink was too many and a thousand wasn't enough for me then. And I got drunk in that job that I needed. That job that I never had dreamed I'd ever get a chance at went down the drain. Not for that second quart of liquor that I bought over at San Bernardino. But because I took that one drink in Los Angeles. That one drink. And it took many long, hard years for me to get that through my hard head that it was the first drink that did the damage. Not that second pint, because it's a foregone conclusion. I couldn't stay around there with my sister anymore. She didn't understand me. I didn't understand myself. I left there with an old Indian boy, and we went to Leadville, Colorado. From Leadville, Colorado, we went up the hill 13 miles to Climax. I got a job in there as a shoot blaster's helper. Shooting off dynamite, keeping them up rolling. It was a cave-in system. They were caving in that whole mountain. It had a percentage of molybdenum in it. Try saying that when you're drunk. Molybdenum. 
Well, they couldn't mount it from the top because of the heavy snow. So they were, had these fingers up in there, and they'd shoot off these terrific shots, and then we'd go in with these batting sticks and eight or ten sticks of dynamite or six or four or whatever it takes, up there and poke it up there and then wait at the bottom of it and try to make it out the door before it went off. I was fortunate. I always made it. <laughs> but you know, that wasn't near as risky for me there as that out of that, that uh, whiskey was at the bar down at Leadville. Because every time I took a drink of that whiskey down at the bar at Leadville, it tore me down mentally, physically, spiritually, financially, every way it could tear a person down. The powder smoke and the whiskey became too much for me, and I drifted back to Texas. We had a line in one of our shows that I never paid any attention to, but now I knew what the meaning of it was. The line was, to be without friends is a serious form of poverty. I now knew what that line meant, because I'd drunk myself away from all of my friends and people of influence and my family. And those, the nearest and dearest to me, seem to be able to do nothing for me. And I'm told that that's usually the case. The people closest to us seem to be able to do the least for us at first. And as it is usually, after I've drunk myself away from people of influence, the jailhouse doors opened for me and they threw me in jail. The more desperate my condition, the more despondent I became, the sicker I was, the longer they kept me in jail, and the more often they put me in jail. And it seemed like that each time they turned me out, I was less able to live without alcohol than before I went in. And I thought I've heard this statement 500 times in my life. I can't understand a fellow like you. I tried to talk to people from time to time about this thing that had happened to me, people that had formerly known me, but everybody was busy. Everybody was in a hurry. I'd go in to see some people, and they'd look at their watch, and I'd say, do you have an appointment? I'd say, yes, I do. In just five minutes, I, I said, well, I'll come back, because, hell, I couldn't think of my name in five minutes. <laughs> I was sick. I was nervous. Well, I've gone in to see other people, and they'd look down at my clothes, and I was very self-conscious about the kind of clothes I was having to wear then. I used to love to wear good clothes. That's why I got on this suit tonight. No more of that sports stuff for me. I wore stuff that didn't match for a long, long time. <laughs> I never did have a pants and coats there for 12 years that didn't match up. And then when I got to where I could afford it, by golly, it wasn't stylish anymore. <laughs> that was in style. But I used to love to wear good clothes, and I couldn't. Because I was a slave to alcohol now, and that took too much of my money. And when they'd look down at my shoes or my clothes, and I'd see they'd notice it, or maybe it was me, I'd freeze. And I'd leave. And then people, some of them, seemed to look out the window as you talked with them. And you'd know that they weren't paying any attention. They were just waiting until you got through. And many people thought you'd come for money when you'd just come. One fine old judge down there listened to my story, and he listened all the way through. And I thought if anybody would understand, surely old judge would understand. And when I got through, he said, Gilbert, I can't understand the fellow like you. You go out here, and people like you, and they try to help you, and they promote you in the job, and they get ready to promote you again, and then you go get drunk. 
I just don't understand. And God knew that I didn't understand myself either. It was shortly after that that I was sent down to Austin, Texas to be locked up as a hopeless habitual drunkard. I wasn't sent down there for the treatment of alcoholism like people are today. I was sent down there to be locked up to protect me from society and vice versa. But shortly before going down there, my wife had read an article in Reader's Digest about some people around Cleveland, Ohio, and Akron, Ohio, and New York City. And this story told about some people that formerly drank just like I was drinking. They had gotten sober and they were helping other people to get sober. And while I was on my way down to Austin, Texas, my wife wrote to that box number in New York. And they answered her letter immediately and sent along a little pamphlet that gave her hope. And they gave her a box number to write to in Austin, Texas. And you know that I'm told that they're still answering those letters all over the world from lonely people. From people that are lost, that don't know what to do. They're answering those letters and they ask you and I to send in $3 a year. That's all. $3 a year to help them keep somebody up there to answer that letter and send out a little piece of literature there and help get a new group started. My wife sat down and wrote to that box number in Austin, Texas, and the day that letter was received there, a man that had neither the time nor the money to spare went to pulling wires to get into that institution to see me. He didn't wait till the next day because he had a golf engagement that day. He started pulling the wires right then, and it took some doing. He was trying to get the respect of his fellow men back, too, and that wasn't any way to do it then, out there knocking on the door of that institution. But he finally got in. And they put us off in a little room and let me talk with old Ed. And Ed didn't look out the window. Ed didn't look down at his watch, and he didn't look at my clothes. He looked me straight in the eye. And it seemed easy to talk. He didn't interrupt me. He let me talk and talk. He seemed to draw things out of me that nobody else had been able to. And when I finished, Ed said, I understand. And those stand as the kindest, the most comforting words I've ever heard in my life. Here, after some 25 years, I finally meet a man that tells me, I understand. I've done many of those things that you've done. Some of them not quite so bad, but some of them worse. I have a mother out here that'll die 10, 15 years too soon because of me. There's nothing I can do about that now, but maybe I can help somebody else so that they don't have to do that to their mother. He said, if you are an alcoholic, we need you and you need us. And then he told me, Gil, no science, art, or human agents has ever been able to do anything about a cure for this thing. But we have found a way to arrest it one day at a time. There's a group of us that meet off of the old mezzanine of the Driscoll Hotel here every Wednesday. And we gather there and share our faith and our hope and experience with each other. And we call on a kind and loving God as we understand him. Or I'd better say it as you understand him. You call on that God as you understand him. And we don't question your conception of God. We think that's sacred to each individual. And then when we get sober, we try to help somebody else. Yes, he said, we need you and you need us if you are an alcoholic. He wrote to my wife and they helped me to get out of there. And oh, gee, I wanted to try this. But I couldn't put first things first. 
I heard an educational speaker, and he drew a picture of an alcoholic and the several different routes they can take. And dadgummit, he convinced me beyond a shadow of a doubt that alcoholism was a sickness. It was a disease. I'd heard this now, but I, I wasn't convinced of that. I'd heard I was no good drunkard too long, you know, just overnight to say, oh, I'm sick. I'd be sick, too. But he convinced me this was a disease. This man was from Johns Hopkins University Hospital. And he convinced me. And you know what I did? I got to thinking about all the people back down the line that had hurt me. The people that had taken advantage of me are sick, man. <laughs> and I built up resentment. And I wanted to stay sober and I wanted to get even with some of those people. And that was my attitude. Seven and a half years I went along as sick as I was, coming into AA and then leaving, wanting to get hold of this thing so I could get even with some people back down the line. And I attended meeting after meeting after meeting, and finally I wound up seven and a half years later up here in Joplin, Missouri. And a non-alcoholic that had read this book befriended me. And he made a call down to Lubbock, Texas, and he called a hard-boiled contractor down there. And if I'd have known he was calling that hard-boiled contractor, I'd have run up the alley. Because I knew what that contractor would tell me. That contractor didn't believe in giving a man but two chances. I'd had 22. <clears throat> but this man got that old boy on the phone, and he came back to me, and he said, I've just called down to that group. And he said, I talked to Carl. And I said, oh, my God. <laughs> then he said, you have some wonderful friends down there. Some wonderful friends. You know what old Carl said? Help that guy if you can. We believe that he deserves it. And do you know that's the last drink I've ever had? I'll tell you what it is. I said, God, please, one more time, help me get back to my friends in AA. And I'll do anything. Anything. And I don't know, it just opened up. I got back, I'm telling you, it's a long drive, sick, and with a little Dr. Miles nerve eating, that's all. <laughs> uh, you all getting tired? <laughs> uh, well, if you are, you know. You know. <laughs> I just got a little more to unload, and then we'll call it over. Uh, yeah, it's a long old drive back down from Joplin, Missouri, down to Lubbock, and then right on to Tahoka. Yeah, 30 miles the other side. And tell you what started doing. We didn't have a group in this little town of Tahoka that I lived in then. We drove 30 miles to the meeting and 30 miles back three times a week. And I still say it's a bargain. God help these people that say, oh, it's the far over there, you know. And I had my house slippers on. <laughs> Talk like nobody else got any damn house slippers. 
And it's something new, just been invented to them. So, you know, there weren't hot slippers before. <laughs> that ain't nothing but some shoes and some cardboard. And then I want to tell you. I get the way off the subject here. But I want to tell you the rest of my life is like a fairy story. I've never made any money. I've had a lot of fun, and every now and then some old boy or girl tells me that I've helped them. And you know what happiness is for me. It's a byproduct that comes from helping somebody else. For goodness sake, stay in here long enough, because you can look and see some old boy and gal going down the road with their family. And you had a little part in that rehabilitation. And it's the grandest feeling you've ever had in your life. I'm so grateful that I, God let me live and you people had the ladder up and the door still open so that people like me could stumble around out there in the darkness and finally get back. You know, I was sitting at a chamber of commerce banquet in my little town of Muse after we finally moved up there. And everybody in town knows that I'm a drunk, an ex-drunk, thank goodness. And everybody in town that listens knows that I've been locked up as a hopeless, habitual drunkard. And everybody in town knows that I'm in AA, not because I told them, but they know it. And you know that I was sitting at a chamber of commerce banquet one night, and you know how they do at those banquets. The outgoing president gives the incoming president a plaque, and then the incoming president gives the outgoing one a plaque, and then the secretary gives the outgoing one a plaque, and then you and the plaque... And I was sitting there thinking, boy, I'd like getting that plaque business. <laughs> and I have read these phenomenal stories, that, and I always said, yeah, somebody took that and dressed it up, and they wound up with what half God wrote. And finally they came on down in this program, and they said, now they come to the highlight of their program when they honor the citizen of the year. And they called me forward. And I, too, said, what happened? I'll tell you that because that isn't a victory for me. But that is a victory for old Ed. It took time off from his work to pull the wires to get into that place to see me. That's a victory for him. That's a victory for Mr. Steve Parker, a busy man in Joplin, Missouri, that took time out to help me, and that's a victory for old Carl down there that said, help him if you can. We believe he's deserving. Oh, and I talked to the Rainbow Girls and the Boy Scouts and the Rotary and the Kiwanis and the WMU, and the, I was over just recently and talked uh, at an alcohol information center. I didn't know what kind of information they wanted, but I gave it to them, and there's a very fine... I didn't know whether they wanted information before or after or in between. I just, I can light in on either part of it. But anyway, there's a fine little Episcopalian minister over there that heads up that, that alcohol uh, information center, and he's worked at it hard for a number of years. And I've had a lot of fun in it. But there's also some rough things that come along. You know, my late wife suffered from muscular dystrophy. And Juanita suggested that I tell you this. 
My late wife suffered from muscular dystrophy. There wasn't anything she could do about it. Just a little bit at a time, the muscles were withering and dying away in her body. She has gone to many an AA meeting with me that I know that she didn't feel like it. Well, on January the 11th, she said, you know, I believe I will let you take me to the hospital. I'm having trouble breathing, and this flu seems to be getting worse. And I took her to the hospital that night. And the next morning, I was over there earlier. Had some coffee in the room, but she didn't feel like drinking any. And I walked down in the hall about 10 o'clock, and the doctor put his arm around me and said, Gil, Holy's not going to make it. And I said, Doc, you can't mean that. She's been sick like these spells like this before. Gil, she doesn't have enough resistance this time. She can't make it. And I rushed down to see this other doctor, and I said, Doctor, Dr. Mack told me Oli's going to die. He said, yes, Gil. I said, call my daughter. She was in college. Call her, please. And I rushed back down there, and she was dead. Now, I've been sober in NAA for a little over 11 years. And my thought was to go to Clovis, New Mexico, and get drunk. This shouldn't have happened to me. Hadn't I been a good citizen or tried to be? Hadn't I been a good father? Hadn't I been a good husband? Hadn't I been a good businessman? I could go over there and drown my sorrow in alcohol. Everybody in AA would understand. And then another little voice came in and said, Isn't it wonderful you had her when you needed her most? Eleven years. And aren't you the guy that goes around telling people, take that little prayer, it'll solve most any problem you'll ever have come up. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And aren't you the guy that's going around the country saying, if you're an alcoholic, there's nothing so bad for you but what a drink will make it worse. You ought to fall on your knees and thank God for the wonderful things you've had up to now. Yeah, you can stay sober when everything's coming your way and it's being given to you, but now something's got to be taken. <laughs> And I grabbed the whole of this program, and I looked at that serenity prayer, and I looked at these steps, and I looked at my life, and it took it all. That church was loaded with flowers, but there weren't one too many. That church was packed with AAs, but there weren't one too many. There wasn't one too many words in these 12 steps of alcoholism. And my wife had sat over at the radio station there and talked with minister after minister after minister about this problem. And they talked many times about creed and dogma, and she talked about this spiritual program of Alcoholism. What a wonderful thing where a Catholic, Jew, Protestant, and atheist or agnostic can all get together and enjoy each other's fellowship. 
and every minister in town was in that church. That was the influence of this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the next day, a little Mexican boy came to my house, and he brought along a little note, and it said a holy mass was said today for the repose of the soul of Mrs. Gildale, Father Cochran. We're Protestants. I said at the beginning, I think, sometimes we don't appreciate what we've got going for us here in this blessed fellowship. I've experienced it. I still think there's everything in this program to meet any situation any man or woman will ever have to face in his or her life. And I can speak from experience. I still believe that the person that you save today may be your salvation for tomorrow. It's like the little poem I read in the Orphan's Home magazine, Bud Likes Poem. <laughs> it says, I met a stranger in the night whose lamp had ceased to shine. I paused and let him light his lamp from mine. A storm came up in the night and it shook the world about. And when it finally calmed down, my lamp was out. But back to me this stranger came, his lamp still glowing fine. He had retained that precious flame. And this time, his lamp lighted mine. You know, I went through some mail that my late wife had received just before she died, and there was one little card. And it was from an Al-Anon. And it said, May the road rise to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. And the rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, you keep working in AA, and God will hold each and every one of you in the hollow of his hand. Trust us against us, 
and we need not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the 